Welcome to the Realized Gains Podcast, a guide to real estate investing. Join our co-hosts, Jordan Lee and Stephen Tran, as we interview a diverse group of real estate investors, both amateur and professional. Our goal is to help you understand that anyone can invest in real estate. Tune in to hear creative strategies and learn from both our mistakes and our successes. You can find us where you love to listen to podcasts, on YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com. If you are good at finding deals, then the clients will come. So it like it all starts with the deal and all all starts with knowing yo you you got to kind of understand what someone's criteria what they're looking for with the deal but if you find a good deal that cash flows then you're going to have no problem finding someone that wants to buy it. Now whether they let you represent them or not it's kind of Im- immaterial. But if you are good at hunting for the deals then you're going to be able to find people to buy them even if you don't want to buy them. Um, and then if you supply people with a steady flow of deals uh, and you can show that you know how to underwrite them, then they will keep coming back. Welcome to episode 27 of the Realized Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran, a multifamily investor, short-term rental investor, and an Oregon realtor. And hey, everyone. My name is Jordan Lee. I'm your co-host, and I am a mortgage lender based in Portland, Oregon, licensed in about seven states, and I invest in single-family homes. Yep. And today we had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Tyler Combs of Rare Bird Real Estate. Uh, um, yeah, it was a super great interview. He, uh, man, he's got his hands in a lot of things. You know, he, he flips... He does property management, or his partner does. They multifamily. They buy and hold multifamily, and he's also a realtor, and he owns a brokerage. Mm-hmm. And he also runs this amazing networking event called the Investor Lab. And you know, I've been there and I met such amazing people. And so, you know, I just want to get in and let him tell his story of how he does a million things. Yeah, a lot of great advice and a lot of great experience. So tune in if you want to learn more. Hey guys, welcome to the Realize Gains podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. And I'm your co-host, Jordan Lee, here. And we have a super special guest on the show today, Tyler Combs here with uh, Rare Bird Realty. Uh, Tyler, hey, do you mind just giving us a quick introduction about yourself, like how, how you, kind of your story, you know, where you came from, how you got into real estate? Sure. Uh, let's see. I'll take you all the way back to 2009. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, the market had just crashed and... Banks didn't know what to do with all their REO inventory and contractors were out of work for the first time in a long time. Mm. So you had uh, an inventory of houses that were dirt cheap and you had labor was dirt cheap. So it seemed like a really good time to jump in. So I... What were you doing before? I was uh, doing software sales training. Okay. Just like, you know, like Zoom events before Zoom was a thing. Web so, Web X or whatever that was, that's called. Uh, it wasn't even that, but yeah, we used something very similar. Okay. Um, so I I was basically just kind of working from home in my pajamas, and uh, you were I, teaching other sales. You were selling to other. I was sales no, I was actually I was just moderating moderating uh, live events. Oh, interesting. Online okay. um, for sales companies. And uh, I was bored out of my mind and um, 
I thought I watched someone else do some flipping and thought this is just problem solving and I like doing that. So oh, interesting. I will just, uh, and this was just a friend of yours, right? Cause that wasn't like yeah. a big TV. Thing yeah. It was just some, either. no, someone was doing it in Vegas and I watched what they were doing and talked to them and my roommate at the time. And I said, Hey, I think we could, we could do this. So we, started on one before that first one was finished we had three going wow we both Whoa. quit our jobs way too early <laughs> <laughs> and not all three of those panned out the way they were supposed to so learned some tough lessons right off the bat mm. and uh and then kind so of you just went right into flipping yeah left the job got, started a bunch of projects at once yes and how, how were you do, how would you not finance it just with your savings or uh no i did Started borrowing money from family and friends and uh, mm. and hard money lenders. And, okay. You know, the wow, name just, of the game, other people's money. <laughs> just dive just the got deep right end. into yeah. it. Amazing. Well, what gave you the confidence to kind of quit your job? Did you feel like you had enough money to survive? You just believed in yourself or? Pure hubris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, I just, I was able to kind of break it into the sum of its parts and see, all right, you've got to. I just hired contractors off of Craigslist, which also I don't recommend. Mm. Uh, and then uh, you couldn't really go wrong back then because the houses were so, so cheap that uh, you could, and, and you could take your time um, getting it, getting it to market. And, uh, and, you know, you, you would be able to find deals all day long. You'd lose sleep trying to sell them. Now yeah. it's hard to find deals, but it's easier to sell them. Mm. And where, how were you finding your deals and selling them? Were you buying them? No, like I just started using or? brokers. Okay. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't as much courthouse. The, the main pipeline for most of the traditional bank foreclosures was just to put it, uh, put it into a broker's pipeline mm. and, and, and ship it out. Um, and, but there was no competition. So you could, especially the fixers, you could scoop those up um, for pretty cheap. And this was you said this is in Vegas or you no I just said watch someone do it in Vegas okay and so I started doing it up up here just started in Portland and pretty much have stayed in Portland uh, my whole career so I've been doing it ever since then started with flipping then started picking up multifamily uh, started a brokerage property management company uh, an educational mm -hmm. company which is how I met you guys yes mm -hmm. and. And, and networking group and kind of all of it just revolves around kind of the scrappy investor philosophy of, you know, get your hands dirty, get good deals, get really good at finding good deals and don't be afra afraid to collaborate with other people. Okay. I, I did want to take a little pause. Like you said, you started a realty group. So like, was there, you, when you, uh, switched careers or switched into flipping in 2009. Did you also get your license at that time? No, I just used brokers and I learned a lot from those brokers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some what to do, some what not to do, a mm -hmm. little bit of how to underwrite a deal. Uh, and mm -hmm. then it was probably three or four years later that I got my license after just, you know, I, my goal was to get as close to the decision maker as possible. And if you have seller, <clears throat> The seller's broker, the buyer's broker, then you, there's a big game of telephone that's going on and a yep. lot of miscommunication. And I wanted to get one step or step closer to that seller. And so when you started initially, you, you basically got your license so you could do it for yourself? Yep. Yeah, I got it so I could just uh, 
negotiate my own purchases and negotiate my own dispositions. Okay. And when did you do the transition to like actually working with like clients and investor clients? Uh, it just kind of naturally, you know, as, as I got more connected in the investor world, just started picking up investor clients, working with investors. I did a little bit of retail work with friends and family, and uh, I'm, I'm not very good at kind of doing the, you know, the touchy feely. Let's, you know, how, how warm does this house <laughs> like, feel? Like put me in front of a spreadsheet and help me knock numbers. numbers. Yeah. No, I, I feel don't, the same don't ask me to pick your curtains. Oh, what about, for our audience, talk to us about dispositions. What's what is that? So dispositions, just the the sell, selling of the asset when you're done doing whatever you were supposed to do with it. So if it's a flip, you're usually doing a remodel. Uh, if it's a multifamily or you know an investment income property, then your your goal is to stabilize it, and that could be through repairing it or it could just be through you know stabilizing, getting it rented up, getting the market the market rents up. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about underwriting a deal, finding a deal, and you said that you know you, you started out one, two, three really quick and a couple of them didn't work out the way you wanted to. Can you maybe give us a couple examples of things that didn't work and, and how you misunderwrote them, wrote them um, or, or kind of the mistakes you made early on and, yeah. and what you've learned from that? Uh, I, I, I could talk all day on that. <laughs> no, we want work. you to talk all day on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I probably, I think it was the third deal I ever did was, uh, it was a bank repo and it was $92,000 off of 92nd and rural and kind of the Foster Powell mm -hmm. area. And it was, uh, someone had kind of started the remodel gotten it down to studs and then stopped went bankrupt the bank picked it up and i was had concerns but the mentor at the time that i had was like it's 90 92000 don't even think about it just buy it <laughs> so i took that advice which was bad advice i i bought it because it was cheap um and, and you i hadn't done that big of a remodel hadn't done that big yeah. of a remodel yeah hadn't gone through that level of permitting that was required and it got into it with a contractor started working kind of simultaneously while we were getting the permits uh they kind of i think we got our some of the trade permits first and then when we went in for the building they shut the project down because it was in a floodplain someone had put an illegal basement in it so their solution was fill the basement in with concrete so that was going to take off half of my square footage and cost me an arm and a leg. So I said, I'm not doing that. We got to figure out a different solution. And that turned into a two or three year legal battle, uh, which I finally won. <clears throat> but uh, along the way, I had a host of squatters and other fun experiences mm. that taught me a lot about uh, specifically Portland real estate investing. <laughs> So what was the, how, how were you able to resolve that legal battle? I mean, what, what did you end up arguing? It, it was actually someone at the city that kind of took pity on me or I built rapport with, I'm not sure which, but you know, I was just kind of nice and persistent and eventually uh, kind of got steered in the right direction that if I could find aerial photographs that the house was remodeled and that basement was poured, Prior to 19, I think 1980 or 81, when the FEMA maps came out. Prior to the FEMA maps, if you can, if you can uh, 
predate that, then you could get grandfathered in and you wouldn't have to do the basement. So I was able to find aerial photographs at like the some historic society and huh. submit those and I was able to get out of filming in the basement. Interesting. So there's a repository that just collects yeah. aerial photos from these time period every Yeah, the things you learn. <laughs> wow. Okay. So what did you do with that property two to three years later once you got through that battle? Were you just holding it and losing every single month on Yeah, yeah. I was burning burning uh my cash pretty quick on it. Um and eventually I got the right permits, I finished out the work and I, I sold it, but it took a while to sell too. And I had to sell it at a discount. I lost, I lost quite a bit on that, that mm. third one. So I made a lot on my first one. I made a good chunk on the second and then I lost a lot on the third. So it was kind of a, a pretty, pretty quick learning curve for me to, to kind of figure out, all right, there's some ups and downs in this game. So when you, what about the investor though? So typically I think of with private money loans that you're going to be, you kind of have to move it really quickly. What, what did they say when you're like, Oh, I'm sorry, I can't sell it. Were they just like, okay, we'll spend another year or. Yeah, that was a, a private lender, not a professional hard money lender. And I just kept having to extend. Oh, okay. kind of explain so it was, me. that so, was someone that you had a relationship with. It yeah. Wasn't, and okay. I do a lot of a private uh, money borrowing that's, you know, from non-professional people. Mm. And the the thing I like about that above, hard money is usually brokered money. So it's someone else has raised funds, pulled them together, and they are making their money on the points. They want the turn and they want the, the fees and they do not want to extend usually and they want to charge you an arm and a leg. If you have someone that's a private lender that it's their own money, and they're making a really good return and you pay them every month on time, then they are a lot more open to Oh, extending. okay. I've never actually heard this clear distinction between private and hard money. Well, private can kind yeah. of be an, a, an umbrella for all kinds of non-institutional money. But when I say private lender, that's not a hard money lender. I'm talking about private individuals who have- Yeah, you have, could be borrowing from me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a lot of times they use their, you know, their, um, self-directed IRA right. or something, some And I'm not going to be upset if you're making your payments on time and right. it's at whatever prevailing interest rate. Correct. It was, it's usually yeah, much above the prevailing interest rates. So right. they're, you know, they're not going to find a better return elsewhere. And they're usually going to roll their money into, into your next deal anyways. Mm. So an extension just isn't as big of a deal for them. Huh. Interesting. Can you tell me how you were finding these private lenders? Like these are just personal friends? Or... Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> like, can you give me their numbers yeah. and what their rates are? <laughs> I mean, like I said, it started with friends and family. And then, uh, and that, the, you know, that takes a, when you haven't done a lot of deals, that takes a tremendous amount of trust. Mm -hmm. So it's sure. usually going to start with friends and family. Or you're going to, instead of trust, you're going to, just pay out the nose uh, for a hard money lender. Or um, even then, a lot of times hard money lenders don't want it to be your first deal, right? right. Um, and that after the first few, when you start having a track record, then you, and you start getting knowledgeable in your little area of the world, then you start talking to people that maybe have an interest in, in doing what you're doing. And then when they start realizing how much work it is, they, and they see what, amount of returns you're giving to 
other private lenders, then a lot of times they do the math and say, you know what, I'd rather just be a passive lender. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just kind of a lot of times, like someone who started with me trying to ask me to help them find a deal, a lot of times that relationship can turn into a lending relationship when they look at the deals, they look at the work and they say, this is not passive investing. So it's just like a little baby syndication in a sense where you're just paying them like a set return number and they're just happy doing that instead of getting into actual real estate? I mean, kind of, I would hesitate to call it a syndication for multiple reasons, but uh, it is a, it's a, it's just like a bank loan, right? So they're going to get a promissory note and a trust deed and they're going to be secured on the property with a, a predetermined interest rate, but there's no upside. There's no profit sharing. There's no GP and LP in the deal. It's just, it's very simple to start out that way. From a mortgage perspective, when you go to refinance out, it looks good on paper too, from the lender, from, from our perspective, when we're looking at it, or if I see that I can, I can use that as a note to refinance. Right. It definitely makes it easier than like a cash out refi if you're using your own funds. Yeah. But the other to, to your question about where do you find them, the number one place that I've found private money is sellers. So mm. starting with a seller finance situation where they it's their asset, they are very comfortable with it, and they don't look at it as forming a new lending relationship. They look at it as, hey, I'm just delaying the payment that I'm owed for selling this property. So they look at it from a f- completely separate point of view, and then you have a period of time to build that rapport. So you're paying them on time every month and you are sending them Christmas cards and bottles of wine for their birthday. And then when you go to sell that property years down the line, they are very motivated to keep their money with you. And so most of my kind of pool of private money has been developed over seller relationships that started with one house and then you kind of move them from house to house. Okay. Interesting. Huh. So you are you you're saying that like you find a property that's distressed and the seller you might have them finance the 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 part of that or uh I don't really look for distressed properties. Okay. I know a lot of people do. You find that with the distressed properties it's motivated sellers. Right. But if you have non-motivated sellers that have options and equity okay those are great seller financing deals oh i see and they and are usually an investment property or does yeah, it matter usually it's non-owner occupied right, right. so whether it's single family or multi-family so there's no timeline on there's it as they well. yeah. they don't have an urgent need to right. take that money and buy their new residence mm-hmm. it it's it works a lot better if it's an income property okay that makes sense huh never thought about looking deals like that so they were just holding on to like value add properties and they didn't have like an urgency to sell, but you came in and said, I'm going to get a loan from you and add some value to this property. Right. And they probably wouldn't look at it as a value add property from their perspective. You know, I don't think I've ever met a seller that would admit <clears throat> that they have a bunch of deferred maintenance on their property. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I definitely have some still got to work through it. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, can you tell us, you know, obviously you, You've been doing your investments for the last couple of years. Well, when you started out, you had that one bad one. Um, can you talk about your journey into working with investor clients specifically? Because I know that you just mentioned you you don't really work with the first-time home buyer feeling. Can you talk about working with uh, investors specifically? Um, 
what would you like to know about working with investors? Well, we're, we're, well, obviously, I know you have the event. How about you talk about like where you get your clients from? Obviously, I know you have the event. Uh, I'm sure you have other um, avenues to get investor clients. If you are good at finding deals, then the clients will come. Mm. So it like it all starts with the deal, and all all starts with knowing, you know, <clears throat> you you got to kind of understand what someone's criteria what they're looking for with the deal but if you find a good deal that cash flows then you're gonna have no problem finding someone that wants to buy it now whether they let you represent them or not it's kind of Im immaterial but if you are good at hunting for the deals then you're going to be able to find people to buy them even if you don't want to buy them um, and then if you supply people with a steady flow of deals uh, and you can show that you know how to underwrite them then they will keep coming back so you kind of got to the point where you were kept finding deals, but you had too much in your pipe and you're like, what else can I do? Yeah, maybe it's you have too much in your pipe or maybe it's that your criteria is pretty refined and that mm. just doesn't meet your criteria. That's it's not, not, yeah, not specifically house. what you want to do. Right. Mm, that makes sense. But knowing who the other players are in town and getting to know their model by listening and, and watching what they're doing, then when something comes along and I look at it and it's like that's not perfect for me but it's perfect for joe over here right. then it it makes an easy collaborative relationship and do you do like the some of the work when you started were you doing some of this work on your own too or were you hiring it all out or no i am the least handy man <laughs> so and that's like i have friends that are really skilled and it's hard for them to get out of that right. contractor role. Mm -hmm. That was not an issue for me. I am not skilled in in any handy areas. So uh, right off the bat, I knew that I had to, to hire it out. Um, and just kind of learning from managing contractors. Now I, I know kind of what needs to be done and what the process is, but I really rely heavily on general contractors to yeah. get the work done. Yeah. You said at first you kind of tried just finding people off Craigslist and you didn't recommend that. Um, what did you learn from that experience or uh, yeah, how are you, how do you kind of find your contractors now or what's your process there? What do you recommend to folks? Uh, I mean, I'd say referrals are worth their weight in gold. Mm. So finding off Craigslist, you're just basically going off of someone you know, how good of a salesperson someone is. Mm -hmm. And then you are, even if you ask for referrals, they are providing the referrals. So they're going to be biased, right? They're only going to be their good clients or it could be their, your, their cousin and their girlfriend for all you know. Like you don't know who you're talking to when you ask questions about their projects. Um, if you have other friends that are active in the industry, ask them, for contractor recommendations. Now that is one of the most, especially right now, coveted yeah. relationships. So most people are gonna hold their cards close to their chest, but even just kinda, uh, as as the, as some, you know, there's always gonna be an opening, right? So just keep asking for referrals. Um, also, you can look at like permit history and you can see, all right, the, like look at your comps and look at who did those, those uh, remodels. Mm. If they pulled the right permits, you're gonna be able to look at who the contractor on file was, and uh, and you can find people that way. Um, I have I have one friend that he goes to uh, big production builder job sites, and uh, he goes after five when all the lazier people have gone home. The general foreman uh, is gone home, and he 
looked for the guys that have been work they're still working after hours mm. to get the job done and then he he bribes them off of those projects so <laughs> i've never done that before little, but i thought that was a genius idea a little cutthroat but smart yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i'm well i also think like you know i did meet some contractors at your event the uh, i don't even know what's the rare bird investor event. lab investor lab i always just in my head it's like the rare bird investor event so it which, is good it branding is right yeah <laughs> no um no i mean i you know, you have, you run a great event, tons of contractors, wholesalers, other realtors, competition, et cetera. Can you tell me about uh, starting that Investor Lab event? Or, or you started it, right? I co-founded it with Mike, my business partner. Okay. Uh, and we started it as a breakout group of another investment club. <clears throat> and then uh, after a while, we we broke off on our on our own. Uh, one of the big things we wanted to make sure we did is build a, a group of collaborative investors that are actually actively doing stuff in their industry, right? They're, they're not just talking about deals they did in the 80s. They're actually <laughs> doing deals on a, you know, day-to-day -day basis, this is their career or they're, they're hoping to turn it into a career. And then they are open to collaborating with other people, open to sharing information, exchanging ideas, and that, you know, that there, there's no predatory aspect like that, you know, we don't allow people in the group that are constantly pitching predatory deals or <clears throat> loans or scams. And, and then we keep the kind of the gurus out. We don't want um, people that are constantly pitching their mentoring program or their, their educational series with the constant upsell. So all, all the stuff that we didn't like when we first started, we try to kind of like clear the air of and have a safe, safe collaborative space for people to kind of invest in each other. Yeah, it seems to me like it's, it's super valuable because I don't, I don't find a lot of value in like books about like flipping and, and like you said, with those, the guru crowd, when you go on like YouTube and you can learn a lot there, but like you said, there's always that kind of upsell. Um, and to your point, like for me uh, personally, I have uh, two of my investments are done with a partner that I met through real estate and, and I've learned a lot specifically from him. So I think, yeah, if you can get in the room with people that are actively investing, it's, it's super, it's super valuable. Um, because they, they kind of know the climate, um, and they can teach you about the mechanics better, I think, than, you know, whatever else on YouTube or books. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's pathways to, to acquiring knowledge, you know, all over the place. Right. And I've learned a lot from YouTube and books as well, but there's nothing better than taking someone in your own market out to lunch buying them lunch and hearing their story and being able to, you know, even better see some of your, their projects, hear what they've learned. That's like, that's just kind of like fast tracking your, your knowledge acquisition. Awesome. And can you kind of tell us about your portfolio? It seems like you started with a lot of flips. Um, did you eventually hold on to things? Like what, what does your portfolio look like? Yeah, started with the flips for the first few years and then kind of started being able to pick up a few small multifamilies and that kind of ballooned. And And the first few multifamilies I picked up were because of seller financing. So mm. uh, before I even thought I was financeable, I was able to get into multifamily with very little down um, because I built a relationship with a, a seller who was willing to finance it for me. Wow. Uh, and, and so it started with like, I think my first was a triplex and then, um, a duplex and a fourplex and kind of stayed 
kind of found our, our niche in kind of close in Southeast um, or not Southeast, Southeast and Northeast and North, like just East side, close in Portland um, with those kind of uh, those small plexes, those kind of our, our bread and butter mm-hmm. of our portfolio. And so. were these similar situation like we talked about before with seller financing where um, they were non, the seller owned them, but they weren't occupying them. And, and you kind of found that out through title search or just through, through looking around or how did, how did you discover that? Uh, Yeah. Like at first we kind of stumbled on them and then we started kind of tailoring our list specifically for those type of sellers, Mm -hmm. uh, sellers that own multiple properties is always a, a great one to target because they are usually savvy. They know kind of what they want and they know, Oh, they kind of, they, they're going to be eventually have to have a plan to kind of start selling off their portfolio mm-hmm. unless they want to keep it forever. <clears throat> and so just kind of hunting for the, the right seller, hunting for the right properties, uh, it has to meet your criteria and it has to work out for them. Uh, and then, and then when you start making sellers really happy, then word gets around and they start referring other, other landlords to you. And in all of these properties, did you do, you remodeled them and brought them and did you fix them up a lot or? I mean, it really varies on the property, right? Some landlords took uh, really immaculate care of their properties. Others were glorified slumlords. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, some of the properties we took over, we couldn't keep the tenants in because we couldn't in, in good conscience keep it in that condition. And we needed to vacate the building to be able to go to the level of repairs to get it up up to code and up to living standards that that we would want to see so it just kind of like some of them are down to the studs some of them are just you know my favorite are the ones where the there's still room for value add and and upside in rents but you can do it as tenants turn over so you're not doing this wave of evictions you're just waiting for them to to you know, one or two to leave, and then it's a less of a capital ex- extensive project when you can just do it one at a time. And so I love turning over units slowly and then having it stabilized within a few years. So like basically, there it's livable, but then like you can do some cosmetic fixes or something when people come. Yeah, out. when someone turned, or you know, when someone so when someone leaves, then you can take a lot more inventory on the condition of the property. Mm-hmm. And you you bring it up to whatever standard you're looking for in terms of what kind of rent you're looking to get. Okay. And, you know, I'm curious about finding these, like, seller finance deals. I mean, a lot of these people who own lots of properties, they could just, you know, sell sell completely 1031 to another property, et cetera. Uh, why are they motivated to do seller financing? A lot of them don't want to do 1031s. They don't want to own more real estate. Okay. They, they've they played the game. They've played it well. And they want to cash out their chips. But... Then they look at cashing out their chips and they see the capital gains they're going to have to pay. And the, the, the 1031 game is not a tax savings game. It's a tax deferral, deferral. game. Yeah. So when they, if they've 1031 um, over and over and over again, that, that bill's going to come due. <laughs> and they, right. uh, so they, the, the seller financing is a way, it's also a deferral mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't save you on any taxes. It just spreads it over and it makes it uh, less painful. So 
Um, but if you're doing like if you have a really low down payment and you're doing interest only payments, then you are deferring for as long as they want on, on the capital gains side of things. Okay, yeah, that was kind of my next question is how you structure the seller finance, but maybe it depends on the seller, but it always starts with the seller. Yeah, like, what are their goals? <laughs> and how much do they want per month? How mm -hmm. much do they want down? And then you kind of work backwards from there. Or... Right. And a lot of times you start with what they say initially, you kind of craft some options. And then you have to revisit it a few times because a lot of times the first thing they tell you isn't really what they are really afraid about or what they really want. Um, sometimes they don't even know. So sometimes it's a starts out as a, a conversation to kind of find out what is their their main motivators. And then you bring in, say, a CPA or attorney that's on their professional team to kind of help them really get down to what what they really need in terms of their, mm, their planning, their tax liability yeah. and whatnot. Okay. That makes sense. Interesting. But I, I find CPAs can be a really good advocate, um, for seller financing. I call it installment sales. That's the term they like to, to hear installment, sales. installment sales, same thing. It's just, that's kind of the IRS term. Um, but if you, makes sense, sometimes yeah. all you have to say is, Oh, you're looking to sell. Have you talked to your CPA about what that's going to do to your taxes? And, if they haven't thought about it, then you can kind of just plant the seed. Hey, ask your CPA if an installment sale would help you. That's all you say. Then you let them go to their CPA and then their CPA is usually very in favor of that because mm. it's a great way to defer the taxes. Mm. What about financial planners? Do they, do they, are they kind of on the same uh, There's side? a few financial planners I've run into that really get that and, and get how that, especially you know, if this person has been real estate intensive and they're investing, uh, then they're probably going to have found a financial planner that understands the value of real estate. But the majority of financial planners are rewarded for right. uh, doing more, uh, you know, traditional institutional investing um, and, you know, anything from annuities to, to stocks. Right. And so they're not usually aligned with the interest of like being really smart and strategic with the real estate. Uh, they're more interested in how can we cash out as much of the real estate so that I can put it to use in a way that benefits me. Right. Um, so it's, it's, I'm always real excited when I meet a fan, financial planner that has a deep understanding of real estate and mm -hmm. understands how it's in his client's best interest, but that's not too common. No, that's, it's, it's true because I, you know, I got a financial planner before I got my first fourplex and they thought it was a pretty bad idea. And then the next property, they're like, yeah, that's definitely a terrible idea. You're putting yourself in a lot of debt. I don't think they thought about, you know, the cash flow aspect or anything along those lines. <laughs> no, I love talking to them and be like, so mine is secured with actual land <laughs> Yeah, with people who are obligated to pay me and, uh, and the, the, product you want to put me in has none of the security that that I get. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm very pro real estate, you got to diversify, but I still have most of my stuff in real estate. Oh, yeah, me too. I mean, like I said, that I, I accidentally fell into that. But uh, you know, my financial planner was like, max out all your tax advantaged accounts, etc. And go make that 7%, you know, interest on it. Right. Okay, so can you tell me a little about a little bit about your real estate team and like where that started from and what it looks like now? Yeah, we just we have a we've always had a pretty small brokerage. It's we're a boutique brokerage, if that means anything these days. But <laughs> you know, we're really focused on just in investors and investing. So if you're a broker that has 
uh, you know, that has a goal to work with primarily investors, then we're a great fit. If you are just focused on building your own portfolio, then we're a good fit. But if you're like we kind of talked about, if you're looking at your typical retail brokerage model where you want your main income to be off of commissions, then, you know, there's a lot better brokerages out there. Mm. But we like kind of a tight community where we analyze deals together. We get on a call every week and we kind of go over all the deals that everyone has on their plate, you know, whether it's from like they're trying to figure out how to develop the property um, and exploit the the zoning code or if they're trying to figure out how to renegotiate something with a seller on an off-market purchase. Those are those are the kind of discussions that we have in kind of a mastermind environment and kind of go over everyone's deals. Well, I'm assuming if you know they want to buy real estate, they're going to need to sell real estate to get the commission. So, are they like usually doing something on the side, or they're just figuring out creative ways to finance their projects while they're working under? Uh, well, you know, we have a mix. Everyone has a different model, but you know, we have some people that they they make their kind of their daily their daily income off of commissions. And then, you know, put away as much as they can into their side real estate investing. We have a lot of guys that uh, real estate investing is their main income and they just get a few commissions as a perk on the side. So we have kind of both sides. We also have people that, you know, basically flip to make their 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 money and then take all that money as much as they can and put it into their hold portfolio. Hmm. But the great thing about having your real estate license and being a investor is that you can, it just gives you a lot more options in terms of how you can monetize your leads and how, and like what other negotiation levers you have. So as a real estate agent, I can go to another agent and I can, uh, you know, offer them that they can keep my commission mm-hmm. and that's going to put me in, in front of the line. If I'm dealing with a seller, I can, that isn't our, doesn't have a listing agent. I can just waive my commission. Um, and that can be a big perk to somebody. Um, or if I'm dealing with, um, you know, a, a property where the commissions are already in place, then I can take commission and put that down towards my down payment. So there's, there's all sorts of ways that having your license can kind of help you structure the deal to make it work for you. Sometimes, you know, when you're when you're buying a deal and you're getting a commission, you're you're getting this extra chunk of change to be able to put into the, the property yeah. from day one. So it's it it definitely doesn't hurt. The the downside to having a a license as an investor is there's additional paperwork and disclosure requirements, mm. extra steps. You have to be very careful in terms of, and this may be getting in the weeds, but agency is that like, who are, whose interests are you representing? So you can't go to a seller if you're an agent and kind of pretend to be helping them as a realtor and then kind of switch and put on the investor hat and say, Oh, just kidding. I'm, I'm going to buy it from you because you already, <laughs> you basically already said that you're going to be their advocate. You can't, Oh yeah. You your home's not worth that much. Right. It's only worth this yeah. much. And, and I'll be the buyer for yeah. that. <laughs> and people have gotten big trouble for doing that because people get confused. Right. They're not professionals. They don't know how the industry works and they can get taken advantage of if they, if you come as their advocate and then, and then switch sides. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more? Like, obviously, you know, you have these sellers that maybe you sign these contracts with, and 
you know, how do you make sure that you're representing their best interest in those situations where you're like, maybe I do want to buy this? Do you like basically show them comps of what this could be worth? Or how do you make sure that they feel comfortable that they're not being taken advantage of? Well, if I'm the buyer, then I, 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 it's very, it's much easier to start as the investor because you're very clear that, Hey, we're on opposite sides of the table here. Yeah. Like we're, mm -hmm. I'm going to try to, yo know, structure a deal to meet your needs, but I'm also meeting my needs and there's no ambiguity about that. When you are coming as a listing agent, then you're saying I'm, you know, I have a fiduciary responsibility to, to represent your interests. Well, that that's that's also very clear, but you can't you can't switch from uh, fiduciary to non-fiduciary. So, yeah. so I start as the investor and I try to make a deal work for me to buy it. If mm. that doesn't work, then switching to a, a listing agent is an option. But you know, I I try to like kind of figure out the best option before. I lay the cards out on the table so that it can be pretty clear all the way from start to finish. No, that's, that's a great explanation. That makes sense. Um, switching gears here a little bit, you, you mentioned, did you say that you own a property management company too, or you have a partner that does that or how does that piece work? Yeah. So I don't use my license for a property management company. <clears throat> my partner, Mike is the licensed property manager. Okay. And that just came about because we started picking up our own portfolio of properties and mm -hmm. realized uh, this is overwhelming. We need to bring in staff. Right. Um, we've started by trying to hire property management companies and we just didn't like the mm. way they run, ran it. And, and we thought, well, Hey, you know, why don't we start a property management company that runs properties exactly how we want. And if we bring in other clients, then they're gonna, you know, they're gonna get the same service that we do. We run it from an owner's perspective not not nickel and diamond people on fees. Oh, okay. So, so built, it's not just for your own portfolio. You you have you offer this service to your clients as well. Yeah, we just scaled back recently to <clears throat> really focus on just our own portfolio. So now it's a service we just really offer to 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 our own portfolio and then our partners. So when we okay. collaborate with people, when we have partners in different deals. Uh, then we'll manage their properties mm -hmm. for them as a service. But um, we. We found that trying to be in the middle between the tenant who has a valid a valid request and a property owner who you know has the valid motivation that they want to make sure their property cash flows, you're in the middle of that. That's not a fun place to be. And our yeah. staff really didn't like it too much when, mm -hmm. as we were growing. So we brought it in to be just our um, you know just kind of the properties that aligned with our our vision of how that should work and where those boundaries are with with tenant and and the profit um and and i think everyone's much happier now that's, that's great so i mean you have obviously these events you have your real estate group you have the property management uh when do you have time for yourself <laughs> uh you know like that comes and goes in waves. So as an entrepreneur, work-life balance can be really hard. Um, and I, you know, you have a variety of philosophies. There's some people that say that's a myth. There is no work-life balance. You just got to like throw yourself 100% into whatever you're doing. Um, I found that, you know, my happy place is uh, carving out, being smart about business to carve out time where I can spend with my kids. So uh, and, and doing the things I like. So I, but that, that takes sacrifice. So there's some periods of time where I just have to work my ass off 
and I, you know, I'm barely eating um, to get everything I need to get done in the day. But then there's periods of time where I can go take off and, and go travel for an extended period of time, or I can go make sure, you know, when my kids are in sports, I'm coaching their, their stuff. I'm at every game. I'm taking off early enough to make sure that happens. So it's just kind of like I try to think ahead in chunks of time where I can block off. Here's the time I'm going to invest in my business so I can make the sacrifices down the road. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that helps, too, that you don't actually do your own work directly on your property. Oh, yeah. You know, because I've been consumed by that while trying to be a real estate agent, while trying to be a oh. software engineer. It's, it's impossible, <laughs> especially if your only time is nights and weekends. Mm. Like I, I've been doing it, investing full time for over a decade. And it's, it's so much easier when you have the whole day to get everything done. When you have from when your day job ends at five to when you pass out at nine, that's not a lot of time to get a lot accomplished. So you have to be really intentional and strategic with your time. So you have a lot of people you delegate to, I assume. Yeah, we have we have a good um, a good staff, and everyone has a very clear role. So we have like we have an acquisitions manager, we have a uh, a project manager, and um, but you know I still have to jump in where there's fires. So this week we have a bunch of projects coming to the kind of the end the crucial end point. And so um, I'm basically the project manager's assistant for, for the week this week, just making sure that everything is, is getting done and on schedule. Are you still doing flips or these are all projects that you're just renovating to hold to hold as more? No, we still do a good chunk of flips. Um, really? So this whole time doesn't matter up, down, up market, down market, you guys are just flipping. No, I mean, there's a tremendous opportunity in Portland right now like that we've never seen before with kind of a convergence of events of um, the housing crisis and the density overlays, the, the, the residential info project mm-hmm. um, that I always get the number wrong, but the, the, the housing bill that, that passed yeah, oh, yeah. that added mm-hmm. even more density, um, the, the new cottage cluster, uh, the you know, waiving of S- SDC fees for ADUs. Condoization. Condos. Yep. So we're like, it's just a playground right now. Like, and, and you don't have to hold all that stuff. A lot of that, it doesn't really pencil to hold, but it pencils really well to, to oh, flip it. Oh, so, so do you guys do some of that where you like get it set up for a developer and then like permanent and then sell it like that? Or how- uh, we, I've done it all like, uh, for a while I was doing just that, like you take it to entitlement, sell it to a builder. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I, I'm partnered with a builder that like we do all that, that stuff up to entitlement. We do a lot of times there's like a remodel involved on, on the site. And then uh, we take it through condo conversion and then they do the, the, the new construction build part of it. Um, I, I'm not good at managing new construction. So mm-hmm. I love having partners I can collaborate with that are good at that part. Okay, interesting. So you you like to do this stuff. You like to find projects with land on them, but you don't necessarily want to build a, a new house from from permanent well, to completion. We, no, but we do. I so we if if the numbers make sense, we will build it all the way to okay. completion. I just brought in a a, a builder partner that I see, do I that see. Um, and manage that better than I can. Yeah. So you know, I you know, we always ask this question on our episode about you know if you wanted to get started in real estate you know, how should you get started? Can you tell us what you think about that? 
Uh, yeah, I hinted at it before. I think the the magic power is no matter what the market is doing is in the art of the deal hunt. Mm. So if you can hone your skills at finding a deal, then every other door is going to open very easily for you. So if you're like, I don't know how to find buyers, I don't know how to find money, all of that will attract to you if you get good at finding deals. So people will lend you money if you consistently show that you can find good deals. People will buy houses from you if you can find good deals. And, uh, and people will want to collaborate and partner with you if you can find good deals. I will partner, I partner with people all the time. If they can bring a deal to me that's just really great um, purchase price, really great terms and setup, then, hey, let, let's partner. Um, that in of itself, you don't have to have any experience to be able to bring enough value to get yourself an equity place in a project. And for somebody like completely brand new who doesn't even know what a good deal looks like, what what is, how do they learn how to find a good deal? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a, I think you have to have a multi-pronged approach to education. So the the stuff you mentioned, not enjoying the YouTube videos mm -hmm. and the books, like you got to do that. You got to like start just eating, eating the stuff for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, going to um, real estate meetups and events, conferences, and then just shadowing people that are doing it um, is, is another great way. Just, uh, you know, like if you're trying to start and you, you wake up in the morning, you have a free day and you say, I don't know what to do with your day. <clears throat> what I recommend is take two hours and just research, like deep dive, hyper-focus research, one asset class, one business model mm -hmm. in, in investing until like you've just like gone fully down the rabbit hole. And then after those two hours, spend a, the next two hours just dedicated to taking action on whatever you just went down the rabbit hole. And that could just be emailing people that you Google that are experts in that or calling people up in your area that know that have that you know have done that kind of investing um, or driving around and looking at projects. Like whatever it is, two hours of dedicated research, two hours of getting out of your chair and going and doing something about it. And then you will start to learn what you like and don't like about different investment models and asset classes. And what's your favorite strategy for prospecting for deals? Like if you, you know, on any given day, you have an hour or two to spare and you're just like, I need to find some deals. What is, what is your favorite thing to do or your most productive, I guess? Um, for me right now, I think it's it's the networking. Like there's no better thing I can do with my time in terms of finding deals, of going through uh, my kind of Rolodex of, of people and reconnecting and asking them, hey, do, what do you have going on? Do you know of any, you know, I'm looking for this specific thing. Letting your what you're looking for be known and being very specific about what you're looking for. So you for. get on the phone, call. Yeah. Uh, 50, 100 people of like whatever. Get Not even that. List, yeah. It would be a much smaller list, smaller of, list. Of, of friends and connections I've already forged. Okay. That if, if I had it tomorrow, I had to come up with a deal. That is the most valuable use of my mm. time because I've spent so many years forging those relationships. If I was a new investor and I needed to find a deal, then I would kind of like, I would split my time between 
working on building your marketing machine, the, right. the engine that's going to start working for you so that you control the deal source. And then the other part of the time, you know, try to try to work with other people that are really good at finding deals. Mm -hmm. um, and so that can be wholesalers, that can be real estate agents, but I wouldn't try to do just one or the other. Don't just find your deals from real estate agents and wholesalers. Don't just find your deals from your own sources when you're starting out. Like you should be kind of splitting your time evenly between both of those avenues. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I was going to assume you're probably on a bunch of wholesaler uh, email lists. <laughs> Yes, that would be a correct assumption. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. I actually met a lot at uh, Investor Lab events. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and wholesalers have their place. They, you know, it's easy to to kind of make fun of that business model, uh, and there's some pitfalls to that business model. But um, but there is a service provided there, and the good ones can you know build a name for themselves for mm -hmm. consistently providing good deals. The majority of wholesale lists that I'm on, the majority of things that I see are not good deals. They're not, their performance are complete bullshit. Their, their numbers don't make any sense. They're over-promising and they are on, on all sides. So they're over-promising their buyer's list that this is going to be an after repair value of this crazy price. And they are over-promising the sellers because they're locking up the properties mm -hmm at prices that are not, they're not going to be a wholesale it for. And so then they have to retrade at the last minute. And that's kind of the opposite of what a wholesaler should be providing to the marketplace's value. Right. They should be essentially providing the value of no matter what, I'm going to close on this deal for the seller. And no matter what, I'm going to get the buyer something that they can reliably count on as accurate information. That makes sense. That was a big tangent on wholesaling that you oh. guys didn't ask for. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, at the end of the day too, I mean, as, as an agent, you know, we have to be fiduciaries for our clients and wholesalers definitely do not have no, that. It's kind free. of a loophole. They're, 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 they're only representing themselves. And, you know, as long as that's very clearly outlined and disclosed, it can be ethical, but it is definitely uh, kind of skirting the way that the, legal system ha would like all real estate transactions to be structured. And generally just how the public thinks about uh, selling a home. Sure. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's really great. We really enjoyed and thank you so much for bringing the knowledge. Uh, if someone wanted to contact you or if they had a deal that was like, <laughs> I, I don't know what to do with it, but this guy could help me. Uh, how would they get a hold of you? So uh, my Instagram is I am Tyler Combs. Pretty, pretty easy to remember. Uh, and I try to put, I'm trying to, to put a lot more content out there about kind of like uh, funny stories about flipping houses in Portland or more, you know, stuff on how to find seller financing, how to, you know, how to manage contractors, how to, um, how to raise private money, that kind of stuff. So if you're interested in those stuff, definitely check me out for, for more uh, tips and information on how to do that kind of stuff on a fundamental level. And then if you have a deal, uh, just email me at tyler at myrarebird.com. So that's myrarebird.com. And uh, I'd, I'd love to take a look and kind of help you do the underwriting on it to see if you actually have something or not. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so thank much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to the Realized Gains podcast. If you have any questions for our co-hosts or guests, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, 
YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com.